There we go. See, it's something I can see. And I'm waving on uh, four of the books for Xavier's book. And Xavier's book, particularly because it's actually all painting and writing. It's a beautiful book, and you should buy seven copies. We're on Nanawal country. And uh, start by just recognizing that we are on this unceded ground and pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and our thanks for the care of the country for these millennia. And um, I wanted to also to say to Gazebo Books, like the Man, Bill, to Xavier, to everybody who made this happen, what an amazing thing to put together. Especially, you know, we're still in the middle of COVID, for heaven's sake. It's not like it's all gone. And then to, to Diana and Petrie, who's made this beautiful little space, which I'm wildly jealous of, <laughs> made available for us to use. And it's, I like the, the shape. I'm thinking that it'll give with enough bodies here, it'll, it'll break the bounce, but last on to travel. So if you can't hear us at the back, I, I, Dan said, do we need a microphone? I said, no, it's a little space. But if you do need voice, just tell us. And we just have to project. It's actually very straightforward. Okay. <laughs> um, look, there's a, just briefly, there's a long record of, of very clever people who have wondered about the relationship between paintings and poetry. It's a very, very ancient discussion, as you probably know. And because I want to look like a clever person myself, I get to name drop for two minutes or thereabouts, and then I'll pass the baton on to the six poets and to Phil to talk about these things. Um, the first one is Simonides of Chaos, and he was around 2,500 years ago. He said this lovely thing about the relationship between poems and art. He said, Poema pictura loquens, pictura poema silens. And all of you Latin scholars will know that's poetry is a speaking picture. Painting is a silent poem, which is kind of nice. I mean, it's nice. I actually don't think it's true, but it's really nice. <laughs> and most, most often, the idea of this relationship between the two forms is attributed to Horace, who was a Johnny come lately. You know, he didn't do this from 19 British, uh, the, uh, before the Common Era. And he said very famously, Ut Pictura Poesis, which is actually, as is painting, so is poetry, which is kind of reasonable if you think that we're working in the same ineffable space. Uh, doing different things, but trying to make sense of the world, to make sense of a moment, to make sense of a person or an idea. And I like the way that this kind of makes an analogical relationship, saying there's the homology between the ways in which a painting communicates and the ways in which a poem can communicate. Uh, Plato didn't like either of them, of course. Uh, Plato is known for his rectitude, among other things, and he said that poems and paintings don't give us substantiated knowledge, and therefore we just can't trust them. And you know, we don't trust them, but I also don't trust philosophers or politicians or bankers or anybody else. So I think I can trust poetry and painting as much as them. My personal preference for how these two forms intersect actually comes from Gottfried um, Lessing, Gottel Lessing, in his book Leo Kuhn, which you may have come across because he's been around since 1766. So you probably have bumped into it here and there. And his idea is that painting is a synchronic art, it's an art of space. So just walking past, just being in a room with paintings there, you're actually connecting with them. And for bigger work, I mean, for big works like sculptures, you need actually our space because you're a walk around them. But they occupy space, and they connect to us in the synchronic manner of space. And poems, on the other hand, are what we call diachronic, which means that it's an art of time. You have to spend time with a poem. You can't just bump into it as you walk past like you can with visual art. And it has to work on you more slowly. So the one is like, here we are, in here, and we're in, we are enveloped in these poems, and you've got them. 
but now you can sit here for half an hour or an hour and listen to poems in a diachronic manner. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the art of time, if you like. He does also say, poetry and painting are two just or equitable and friendly neighbors, which I really, really like. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to the poets whose, uh, whose books perform that friendly, neighborly attitude, because they are sets of poems, and they are wrapped in one or other of Phil's paintings. And what I love about these is that he breaks with the convention of the, of the book. No title, no author. On the back here, just on the spine, you've got the, type, the, the author, the title, and the, and the, the logo for the, for, for the uh, map, um, publisher. Otherwise, it's an artwork. And the artwork is actually embracing the body of poems. And that's a really unusual thing. It makes for a pretty spectacular spectacular book and a pretty, pretty spectacular, I can't speak, can I? A pretty spectacular series of books. So these are the first four, and there's two more that are today. At the back, waiting for your wallet. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm a seller at all. <laughs> but I do like the way it up ends, the usual thing about the cover. The cover is just a thing that, that holds the book. In this case, the cover is an integral part of the book and really enriching for filling it. Right, we're going to go alphabetically because I'm a word person and I also do endless management. And management's always easy <coughs> things alphabetical or numerical. So first up is Professor Cassandra Atherton, who is a, a beloved colleague and friend. She's a professor at Deakin University. She researches poetry through various lenses. The one I think I like best is the, the idea of democratic poetry, because it takes poetry after, oh my goodness, this is a special form, to this is what we're doing all the time. Everybody has access to it, everyone can do it. She's a ridiculously productive writer in poetry and scholarship. And this volume, um, Life for Man, by Gazebo Books book, Leftovers 2020, contains many poems I know and uh, elsewhere. Yeah. And you will see, as you read her work, that a lot of this stuff is about sex and food. Or <laughs> sex or food, but often sex with food. Sometimes it's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of mocking it there, but the thing is the connective tissue that's running through them. I'm talking about this now because every one of the six po poets does this as well. There's a connective tissue that is a deep and practical philosophy. It's about human relationships, about human rights, about human being. And I mention this because it's good, it's what Aristotle calls good thinking. Um, uh, it means you're, what you're doing, good thinking, is searching for clarity, uh, having ethical encounters with word and world, and wondering about what life is and what it might be and what we can do to make it better for everybody. So it's not looking for the, for the personal good, private good, or for common good. And I really do think we find this in each of the poets' work. Back to Cassandra, her work is gorgeously lush, louche, prose poetry that's deeply ethical and often very, very funny, <laughs> and often a bit tear-jerking. So over to you, my dear. Thank you so much, Jen. Now, Phil did the cover of this book, obviously, as he did the others, and um, he said it was awful, but most people have said it's penises, and I'm happy with either, really, right? It's, it's pretty gorgeous. Um, he also came up with the title Leftovers. I'm terrible at working out titles. And I thought Leftovers, after he read the collection and got a feel for it, was a really honest kind of way of thinking about it. So yeah, there are leftovers that are like the yummy things you leave in the fridge overnight. But there's also being you know, left out, being a leftover in something. Um, and the fact that a lot of these poems started as kind of little fragments, leftovers from other things that then became something more. So I'm going to read you um, four of my prose poems. And the first one's called Carrying a Watermelon, which is a poem I wrote when we were doing some translation in Japan. So the Japanese have such a wonderful sense of humour and I wanted to try and 
some level um, to come up with something that I thought would be appealing for that kind of audience. Carrying a watermelon. After 85 days, I gave back to a watermelon. It wasn't easy. A full-term Jubilee watermelon is 40 pounds, and this one was delivered breech. <laughs> when my water broke, it pooled on the floorboards beneath my bare feet. You didn't realise it would travel under the wood and warp the grain. You'd only find that out the following day when you brought the watermelon home. You could feel the edges of the board curving under your toes. By the time you got me to the hospital, I was dilated 10 centimetres, and the nurse said it was too late for an epidural. But the melon's rind was slick and helped me squeeze it down the birth canal. When I finally pushed it out, I held it in my arms, stroking the skin. It's perfect, you said, sniffing its head. It smells so sweet. It takes a while to stitch me up, so I stay in the hospital while you take the watermelon home. You ring me from the kitchen, swollen boards under your feet, the long bladed knife in your hand. Next time, let's try for a cantaloupe, you say. <laughs> The next poem is called Eggs, um, and I, I like to think of it a little bit as a kind of post-feminist poem. You buy me a Royal Dalton Bunnikin's egg cup for Easter. On its side, a picture of anthropomorphic field rabbits sheltering under a red umbrella. Your card says it's to hold my boiled egg upright for when I dip in the tip of buttery toast soldiers. But I'm not ready to eat your eggs. I don't want to be another of your lovers served deli style at your kitchen bench. Instead, I imagine that when my egg has cooked for four minutes in your saucepan, you turn and tell me I'm as perfect as that egg. But all I hear is, first murderer, what, you egg? Ovum, zygote. On Good Friday it rains and you take me to bed. My ovaries greet you, sunny side up. <laughs> the next one, I write a lot of poems sort of about prose poetry, so prose poems about um, the form. And this one is called Charnel House. When you left, I wrote a graveyard of prose poems for you. Fragments, half phrases, broken images. It was as if your closure had made mine unthinkable. So they sit in a folder like bones in a coffin, a menagerie of missing parts waiting for me to bury the remains. But I'm too haunted by wisps of memory and the weight of forgetting to move. My charnel house of prose poems is full of pieces I've tried to stitch together. They are nothing more than a patchwork of words, but I still can't lay them to rest. And the final one that I'm going to read is about, uh, is from a sequence of poems I wrote about um, these kind of fictitious lovers who leave. And um, one of the sequences was, when I was little, my nanny used to do Tinker Tailor Soldier Sailor, that down my buttons when I was little, and so I wanted to do um, these pretend lovers who were tinkers and tailors and soldiers and sailors. And so this one is the poor man, and this is the last one I'll read. We bonded over tinned butter beans and home brand non-fat Greek yogurt. I had a huge bag of rice in my trolley and you had a sack of unwashed potatoes. I was a Kipfler girl, loved the creaminess of their flesh, their waxy finger shape. You preferred Desirees because they reminded you of Tennessee Williams and sultry nights. I liked Gratin Daffinoise and fond of potatoes, but you preferred Hasselback and Jacket. I made scalloped out of your, and your favourite were mashed. We collided in a cloud of carbohydrates, hale and hearty. You were all heart, bought Valentine's Day cards in bulk. Two decades of I love you for $5.95. <laughs> you purchased rolls of one-ply toilet paper by the dozen, prawn-flavoured two-minute noodles by the pallet. 
but you were generous in bed and liberal with your kisses, spent your time trailing fingertips between my breasts and paying me compliments. One night after sex, you ended it by saying, I wasn't cheap enough to be a really good deal. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Natalie Cook is next up. Um, she sent me a brief bio note, which I'll read out. She said, after growing up in country South Australia, Natalie Cook has called Canberra home for more than 20 years. Last year, Natalie was a recipient of an Edgeworth Fellowship and was mentored by the award-winning Canberra poet, Melinda Smith. Um, while she wrote a manuscript for her first poetry collection, Ta-da, Resident Bees, which is just being published. When she said to me, it was being published and now it's, it's actually been bought, like autumn. Fantastic. Don't place her in profile. She makes it look, I'm just all because who does the poetry. But clearly it's a much bigger bio. But um, I will leave you with your modesty and your privacy and ask you to meet us. Thank you. I'm gonna read four poems today. Um, I'm gonna to take you from Lake George to South Australia, back to the coast, um, also the country between Canberra and the coast and then end on a slightly lighter note um, at the end. So the first poem is called Assemblage. It's not based on a painting, but it is based on or inspired by Rosalie Gascoigne's um, feathered fence, which lots of you might have seen at the National Gallery. It's made of white feathers collected from, or shed by black swans that Rosalie collected at Lake George. Um, then after that, We'll go to South Australia. Some of you might recognise um, the name of Goya. He um, he develops what was known as Goya's line of reliable rainfall. So you know, as many of you know, above that, he worked out that in fact land wasn't necessarily suitable for intensive farming. But because he worked this out while rain was plentiful, his advice was actually ignored by a lot of people often to their detriment. After that, we'll come back, as I said, to the country between um, Canberra and the coast. And then finally, the last poem might give a hint as to why my, my collection called Resting Bees. Assemblage. At the rest stop, sight for sore eyes, released from the metal hurdle between big city and small, my gaze follows sometime fences stitched across the grass of a sometime lake. Beneath the wires that define and divide, airfoils wind whirl, held by the horizon, a change to the landscape that holds change at bay. Heart choked, I watch hang gliders stress test the pinions of the ombre air as though my held breath holds them there. Beneath them, grass and water stippled silk rumpled only by cloud scope, is spread over a story written in silt. Billowing sails carved proud lines here decades ago. We imagine good seasons, immutable, forgetting already this Venetian fantasia, forgetting too Venice's own changing tide. Beneath humans in flight, earthbound black swans await regrowth, no relaunch without their flight feathers white fringe. I've seen, stitched across the gallery floor, fences fly this pale bunting, white feathers held by horizons built of bee box and wire, beneath the vast, implicit sky. Always, I think, cockatoo, not swan, 
Here where our swans are trespassed are white, not black. Here where our arrival was a white swan event. Feather, blade, sail, wing. The lilt to lift as curve meets air. That perfect moment of suspension. Even the wind holds its breath. Grounded below, they're mirrored twins, white flakes of hand-mapped quartz. Have felt thousands of seasons wash over them like tides, like a quickening fever. <laughs> After 30,000 miles in the saddle, he knows this country. He has crossed and recrossed it, riding each line of his self set transects to divide and inspect. The more he sees, the more he, he loves this land, stretched and sparsened like a tanning hide. The more he sees, the more he understands its logic and its limits. His algorithm mustered from long meditation. Its complexity renders him Cassandra, a scientist's fate. He finds no meat geodetic to drink. Land hunger disdains a line unaligned with the evidence of eyes that are fixed on the cornucopia north. Rain follows the plough, the new hydromantics cry, though he warns them the wolf of drought stalks. Contested, maligned, this line, just like others, we map what we see and map the limits of our seeing. Like fortunes, this country blooms and dies in cycles unperceived by men who see seasons in moments. Their subdividing stairs map carte blanche pasture, unseeing the eyes already there. Lines pull places into view. Grass becomes hundreds, paddocks, runs, fences breed homesteads before drought precipitates their next in star ruins. End signs, Canberra, spring 2020. Glory be to trees for dappled shade. Fluttering shadows and flickering light leap across leaf mould skip along shrubs. A lattice of light, a scaffold for growth. Leaves become humus, hollows become nests. Trees write the parable of the leaves and the fissures. But armies of spent matchsticks this year march across hills. Burnt trunks cast but the spindliest shadows as green ensigns emerge and semaphore their loss. New leaves swarm in, new leaves swarm in ground level swarms or swirl in cirrus around black stippled trunks. I'm not one for signs, not for me the substantiations of superstition or astrology's teleology. But in this year mediated by windows, on a trip just to see a horizon again, I stop the car and reach out to touch, like a talisman, a leaf bud burgeoning burgundy then grey, growing steadily upwards towards the too bright sun. Spiked. Footy jersey courtier. Flower diving dabbler. Hive minded honeymaker. Map dancing clone. Cold blooded pollinator. Fairy bottom sun lover. Fluffy Lothario. Budding baritone. Toxin spiked fruit maker. Colonial levitator. Goggle wearing trespasser. Royal chaperone. Pollen plundering bumbler. 
Tiger striped competitor and rival wrestling Zeppelin. Three hijacking going. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to John Cooper Clark last night, and he does that sneaky rhyme, in case you don't quite expect the words, you shouldn't really rhyme, but it happens anyway. With, um, um, Paul Hetherington, Professor Paul Hetherington is number three, and he's been also like a Sandra Coast band and colleague for a long time. I'm number one, and he's number three. <laughs> You're always number one. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul joined the uni and my faculty, and I think it was 2009, eight or nine. And since then, we've been cooking up things, making trouble sometimes, making some cool things happen. Paul's been a massive driving force for poetry and poetry practice, poetry research at the university. We built the poetry on the River Festival. We designed journals. He's just been—he's been the galvanic force going through the, really the whole university, often. Irritating people, often delighting people. <laughs> he, has, he has this wonderful characteristic. He can do almost anything. He's also um, very well known poet. He's been writing since he was still wrapped in amniotic fluid. And his juvenile can still be a part of his mom's house. He's won a heap of prestigious prizes. He's been focusing on ekphrastic poetry, ekphrasis more generally over the last few years. And this, of course, is an expression of how art speaks to poetry, how poetry can speak to art. So he's it's right that he's sort of in the middle of all these things. His book is called Typewriter. It's all prose poems, as is Cassandra's. Most of his have that sort of signature Hedrington urbanity, butted over what I always think of a sort of, what? What is it? How? What? <laughs> yeah, that's how I think of my own I just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and also uh, Phil and Xavier in particular, who have been absolutely wonderful. And they, this book got published in 2020, uh, along with a, a two or three others, and um, then COVID hit. And the fact that um, Phil and Xavier have managed to see the series through and expand it and grow it the way they have is absolutely wonderful. And at a time when poetry publishers really struggled due to COVID and in terms of launches, readings, and all of that. So thank you very much. It's been fantastic. Um, this book's hard to describe because um, it's really a, a kind of weird um, how, what, why kind of meditation on writing and uh, their prose poems are in a sequence and they're rather lateral. So I'm just going to read a few and you want to give you a, a feel for them. Um, and there's, there's a kind of slight elusiveness to some other works as I go. When I was a child, I might have been a poor man's Alice clambering under floorboards in old houses and imagining myself walking through mirrors. I drank dew with bugs and caterpillars, made greenest tea from miscellaneous leaves. I was neither girl nor boy, saying, I am, to quell a sense of vanishing. The Red Queen came to lop off my head. I ducked and swam in a spider's web. I shrank to the size of a postage stamp as a mouse told me its implausible secrets. And then uh, another one on a slightly connected idea. An avenue of lindens pointed towards low hills and a bus with school children navigated pale dust. The woman next door brought a trussed hen and a basket of eggs, 
Shyly murmuring, we studied maps, and he said of your great aunt, as if commenting on topography, I still see her crouching in the corners of rooms. Our words chased previous decades, a well where your rope burnt grass poured water, an itinerant preacher relishing the lineaments of sin, we pegged washing as the school children returned screaming a ribald song, pointing and jeering. In the evening, we reached for a cautious absolution, affection suited to raw and tender hands. maybe two or three more. Well then, she said, picking up the tin, stirring the paint with a torn branch. He thought of the moon she depicted on rectangular canvas, how it gripped a tree fast in alien light, how a couple stood in red intimacy. He remembered their agreement that he'd maintained the sprawling old place. When they'd arrived, the guttering had sagged like a verbless sentence, and the deck was full of woodwork. He'd stripped off friable boards, wondering what else was undermined. Now he dipped a brush, starting the colourful strokes. I think the connection between art and writing, as Jen was saying, as Phil has demonstrated, is so powerful. And uh, for me, it's actually been a huge part of my journey as a writer and poet, and right from the time I was a child, and uh, I remember seeing a Sydney Nolan exhibition of the, many of the Kelly paintings uh, when I was a, a, a boy, really, and uh, the way that they sort of, and even though they're kind of very two-dimensional in a way and look quite flat when you stand in front of them, they also, I felt them cascading, um, coming at me from the, from the walls and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've never forgotten that experience. And so, uh, I think it's, it's a, a magnificent um, you know, connection in all sorts of ways. I'll just finish with this one. Anyway, she said, after all our talk, we were still at odds, but not at agreement. It was the torn fabric we most regretted, hanging like rags. Words were pictures on that silk. But in just one evening, despite their price, you said that they were certainly copies, but the man who sold them would have wept. What was damaged could be stitched, but wouldn't be whole in the old way. When hand in hand, we took the long path down the hillside and ducked into a market stall. A young, black-haired woman gestured towards a curtain and the man slowly lifted those fragile silks from a drawer, obscure maps of the future. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Katie, for being stable and secure. Sivash <laughs> <laughs> Jairus is our next reader. Um, I, I, first, I arrived in Canberra in late 1999, and he was actually one of the first people I met, although I only met him in the form of an article of his that I was publishing in the journal, a beautiful essay on John Berger. 
And I think he was then still working as a geologist. And back then, in those, in those dark days in 1999, I was so young and naive and arrogant that I thought, how could a scientist be so interested and so knowledgeable about culture, art, sociological issues? And of course, I have learned more since then that science is actually deeply immersed in the arcanities of, of art and philosophy. Then I discovered that he wasn't just an excellent critic, which I'd seen in that first article, also an exquisite writer of both prose and poetry. He's also a translator, he's done remarkable translations of, of I, I know particularly he's one like from Russian, but he also translates Urdu and six other languages. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of languages, I ran out of time. Uh, and and he's, done, he's very kindly, generously done a lot of workshops for us at UC and in the Poetry of the Moon Festival doing translations. So, so he'll do a, a verbatim translation and then talk poets through how you, can, how you can pick up on the poetic sensibilities of the original work and render it in English. So it's an amazing thing. Um, he's a lovely performer and he has this voice. He uses voice. He gets that deep, resonant kind of a thing happening. So you feel your insides trembling, like the heart and the middle organ shimmering along with the rhythm and the pattern of his voice. Um, his work is a flame, so stand by to be shivered. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jim, and thanks for, for all of you for coming. And uh, this open field was doing this. He said, your name won't appear on this. I, I said, I'm more than happy with it because I'm neither a writer nor a poet. I'm just an imposter. So I'm, I'm very happy that I'm just out of sight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read four poems. There are three narrative sequences in the book. The first one is called Moscow 1974 and Aratoria in two voices. Uh, in the beginning there was the apple and the apple was red stained by the kiss of Tamripu's lips. Goshi said, handing me the apple, go you idiot, but know that I'll wait for you. And so I walked with the apple tucked inside the pocket of my parka. The night was riven black, streaked by the shy light of a two-day moon, wearied by cold mist. I shivered. The apple was warm, its roundness soft like the touch of hope. It kept me awake. But was I truly awake? Was the city I saw that night nothing but an apparition? A walk in which each step I took wiped the traces of steps left behind. But the apple, like Ariadne's ball, spurred me on, unstringing stories to remember and forget. Two days later, I returned the apple. It was uneaten, but for a bite of the skin and flesh, with Tamriko's lips had left a kiss. The second one, and the one which will follow it, are about, inspired by paintings. They are not about paintings. They sort of walk around them and walk beyond them. 
The boy is only four or perhaps a little older. He stands with his mother looking at the painting. There isn't anyone around in the hall. The figure in the painting holds a bright sun-like ball in her hands. Her eyes are shut, but her face glows in the light. The gift of friendship, it is called. I watch and listen, the boy hesitates, his mother prompts. I can't hear the words, but their whispers waft in the air. They look at each other and smile. I leave the gallery without looking at other paintings. Outside the gallery, I see you sitting on the steps. As I take my place next to you, I notice a picture postcard in your hand. The card has the same painting on it. We look, and only then a thought flashes in my mind. The young woman I saw was perhaps you, and I was the four-year-old boy looking at the sunlight ball ready to accept the luminous gift. But who was the woman holding the ball in the painting? Asks Churlyonis. You say, he painted them. Churlyonis was a 20th century, early 20th century Lithuanian painter, composer, and writer. The next poem is from the narrative sequence called In Praise of Silence. And all the poems are improvisations after haikus. And this one is after a haiku by Kobayashi Isa. And it's uh, called Tiresias looking at all the big rain coming from topside by Robert Thomas Julam. And this is uh, a dedication to the Reconciliation Week, which is coming. I'll first read the Japanese haiku, and then the English translation twice, and then my very bad improvisation. <laughs> Toyama ga medama ni utsuru Tobokana, the distant mountain reflected in his eyes, dragonfly, the distant mountain reflected in his eyes, dragonfly. She calls him Tarisius. The visitor who arrives each Thursday, every second week of the month. <coughs> Escorted by a young boy, he shuffles up to the painting. The boy unfolds the stool and disappears, leaving him seated to reappear after an hour to walk him out of the hall. What do the blind like him see? She wonders. In the evening, a few minutes before closing, she reenacts the scene, her eyes tightly shut, her face firmly focused, and her hands folded in her lap. Please, she pleads, please show me what the blind man sees. Frustrated, she imagines herself walking his walk. 
This way your hips, feet apart and shoulders straight. The walk of a man in a woman's body or that of a woman in a man's body. But nothing happens. The painting remains silent. The scene unconsummated. And then out of nowhere she hears the oracle-like voice of the boy. Her face feels the burst of moist air. Followed by thunder, her hands move to shut the ears, and she imagines herself turning into a wet streak of pebbles, stuck in the sinuous crevice of a gracious rock. The rain falls and falls as she waits for the water to take her away, hobnobbing with clay and sand, twigs and bark, flowers and nuts, skins and feathers. The metamorphosis has begun that will turn him into a fossil tucked inside the liquefied embrace of a lustrous rock. But the blissful moment lasts only for a couple of minutes. Once her eyes are open, the ears turn deaf and her body inert. At home, Watching a lorigate perched on the water basin in her garden, she allows herself to believe that the moment of magic in the gallery would happen again. The hesitant hope begets joy, faint like the smile on the face of the visitor she calls Tiresias. And the last one is uh, from a sequence called A Flame. It's about, it's in the voice of a young Buddhist monk who self-emulates as a protest. Uh, just a request, if you feel like clapping, uh, please do, do not, <laughs> please do not. Just we were just half a half a minute or maybe 15 seconds in memory of people who are dying in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Not only people, but animals. Mm -hmm. Not only animals, but plants, rocks, rivers, and buildings, and soil. The milk, the milk in the bowl my mother holds is red with blood, with blood from the wound in her head. The wound, the wound, from the bullet the soldier shoots, he shoots, he shoots, I watch him shoot. Each time I shut my eyes, he shoots. His head is turned away, his eyes unseen, his heart beats, I hear it beat and beat each time. I shut my eyes, he shoots, the blood trickles, it drops in the bowl, stains the milk, saffron red, the blood, the blood of my mother, I drink, and I drink the milk, stained with my mother's blood, in the bowl she held, and the bullet the bullet hit her. The ball breaks. It breaks into pieces. I gather in my dream to hold the ball. 
from which I drink and drink. She didn't scream, just fell near the goat, the dead goat she called Amba, the goddess of milk and butter, the one she milked and I milked too. I milk her and milk her in my dream, and the soldier shoots, he shoots and shoots in my dream. as well as happening all through history. Mm. And I'm sure you all know about Walter Benjamin's story of the angel of history, um, angel of the horrified face, the one called Kay's Prince. And he said the angel of history looks back always. And he says history is just disaster, piled upon disaster, piled upon disaster. And he wants to go back and fix it, repair the things that are broken, make the world better. But he's got wings, of course, and the wind blows on paradise and it catches it in his wings blows him backward into the future. So all he can ever do is just watch the horrors of history unfold. And I, I know that's true, but I also know that there's also a lot of wonderful things happening. And I think we need to remind him of those as well. So I'll just stop crying and then go on ah, to Steve. Steve Kemp. Steve is another of the group of the first people I met when I first came to Canberra because we were teaching together in the Creative Writing Program there. Um, in fact, he and I talked together in the very first poetry subject that was ever offered at the University of Canberra. And after a while, he let out to do his own doctorate in poetry. And that, he's another, a bit like Henrington, he's been writing, you know, he's got published poems when he was a little schoolboy in short pants. He may have long pants, but I imagine he had short pants. Um, <laughs> his first collection was 1980s, that's a long time ago. He's been writing, publishing, winning prizes, and, and building his story. And then, in the words of his own bio note, um, when he's not writing, he enjoys travelling, sports, gardening on cool sunny days, reading, writing, hanging around the house philosophically. So welcome him and his love's philosophy, which is the title of his book. Thank you, Jim. Um, yeah, I'll just read. They're sonnet like creatures. They're basically like sonnets, but they're not so we say pure, so Petrarchan sonnet, but, or a Shakespearean sonnet, but they work to synth thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, which is basically what the sonnet does. Okay, I'll start with a poem called The Leech. It's about ancient biology, I suppose. The Leech. Apart from its voracious appetite for mammalian blood, little is known of the leech's ways. Does it know love or family life? Is there communication? Leaf litter's monster weapon. What can you say about one of nature's torture devices? Except that it leaps like a super gymnast aimed at the veins and was programmed a billion years ago with invisibility and infrared detection. Don't credit the leech with any life force nobility. A sense of fair play is hard to attribute to invertebrates. It exists only to suck blood. Without the vampire's savoir faire, the leech won't attain mythical status. 
It's just a vicious slug waiting for the main chance. Leeches fight like hell yet have never killed. Defending the swamp, the leech mean business. And something more contemporary. Um, one afternoon over Baghdad, just about to knock off after a mission, a co-pilot tapped on the pilot's shoulder. I have targeted 15 civilians walking on the street. Copy that, I see them. It was like when you were a kid playing Grand Theft Auto by City and machine gunning the hundred topless strippers who run out of the club screaming. This was real. It's a lot quicker and less sexy killing foreigners. Should I? The pilot asks. I can blow them away, but the window will do it, ground control agrees. The pilot squeezes the joystick. I have impact. Just a puff of smoke on the screen. Ground control responds. Dude, he says. Dude. Um, uh, this is an elegy. The room's in heaven. No one deserves the saddest day ever when a child is taken away forever. All that's left is her growing up, a fine young woman, and remember her love lives always. Now the love for her is all tears. Weep each time we remember. The quiet sermon in logic, faith, community, and continuation makes no sense after the death of happiness. What does misery prove? Nothing, nothing, nothing. A cruel angel just takes and breaks good hearts. She was good and kind and beautiful. The Braxis. The world was born to be destroyed, born again and killed and born and killed, alive and burning until it ends. History, a list of mass murderers. Vicious apes love war, torture and war. Wherever they live, they ate the same fate. Mystery of the world is cracked egg and a holy killer god. Fanatics know the rapture, the world's end glimpsed in terror. Its highest human expression is the sunlight born from a thermonuclear explosion. Purity is delivered, heavenly, heavenly clouds of vaporized ocean. And understand, wild animals become divinely rare. Their habitats, wild homes, a soft earthen tree, cannot flee before the bulldozer concrete, flame, and smoke desert, where only wheat, cows, and crows grow, where wild animals and forests once. The garden remains, and domestic wildlife love that life above all. Whatever shares the human cage, the cat is all that's left of the leopard. The snails who sip spider's milk eat flowers. They live as frogs once did. When it rains and just after, Karawong's flight rained on, ooze and waddles blood. Rainy sagacity, gracious eucalyptus casts its own light. And I'll finish with a more cheerful poem. It's about basically how kids start with nouns and end up learning a few verbs. It's called more words, uses for a father. Swing pusher, human monkey bars, punching bag, stroller roller, ball thrower, toy finder, magic trick performer, hide and seeker, wrestler, piggyback, bear, dog, monkey, elephant, cat, tiger, bird pretender, trampoline, storyteller, 
word teacher, book reader, picture drawer, food feeder, drink dispenser, librarian, taxi driver, mess cleaner, nappy changer, bath maker, towel dryer, sleep rocker, garden guide, song singer, fast bowler, TV remote controller, <laughs> kite flyer, acrobat, safety thing, safety net, fierce warrior, guard, horsey ride. Now more words appear in my head, pop out my mouth, make me laugh. Bird bath, apple pie, big brother, go pick me up, fight time, cricket bat, whack kick, box, new fun, time to play football, we run. Thank you. <laughs> There's a, there's a truism that goes around poets that poetry is always about mourning, but I think it's also about mourning, so you get some joy in there as well, some silliness, and some small people in there as well. And our, our last poet is Kimberly Williams. Kimberly is another of us, Margaret University of Canberra, who do poetry stuff. She's the director of the Poetry on the Move Festival. She directed last year's one and is doing this year's one, and she's super organized, and she acts as though everything is... Everything's fine, sweetie, everything's fine. But actually, it's got a mind like steel cap makes things happen beautifully. So it's very, very impressive. She's writing a doctorate on poetry, and she's focusing on the, the voices and the characters of those who um, tend to be ignored by history. Uh, in this case, it's the women who participate in the uh, invasion, the settlement of America's West in the 19th century. And their voices are not told. These are 19th century hookers and brothel keepers and farmers and shopkeepers and mothers and grandmothers who had their own dreams and aspirations that were every bit as important as those of the sheriffs and gunslingers and ranchers, but don't seem to get told. They're big, big players in history. And Kimberly's met with him on center stage in hers. I will say she's a brilliant human being and she has some secrets which come out occasionally. And the secret that she told me which blew my mind away is that she was taught by Claudia Rankine, the the author of Citizen, that extraordinary work. And honestly, if I'd be taught by Tony Rankine, I'd be like the, um, who was he, the, uh, the mariner, um, sorry, the ancient mariner. And everyone I'd meet, I'd say, do you know what? Because <laughs> he told me, be the first thing I'd tell anybody. And I'd known him for years before she told me. So let's, I'm, I'm not as humble or as courteous as, as Kimberly. She is, and she's now going to take us through her brand new book, which is literally part of the press. I think it's so warm, it's called Still Lives. Thank you so much. Um, so it's true, everything she said about, about Claudia, but also about what I write, but this is a different book. This is all the poems that I've written as I was writing the Western poems, and they, they sort of came separately. Um, and I just would like to acknowledge uh, the Donawal man that we're on, uh, that is unseated. Where I come from, we don't do that. And I think it's really important that here it is done. Um, and I'd also like to, um, to thank Xavier and thank Phil. Um, I'm really interested in space, uh, poetry in space, and working with Phil um, as an artist. He could see things about the space on the page that I couldn't see, and this project turned out to be just a great collaboration and a great joy. So um, I'm going to read. Uh, four or five poems, depending. Uh, but this first one is uh, because of Paul. Um, he said to me once, I notice you don't write much in meter. So I went about <coughs> writing a prose poem in meter. Um, 
And the, the meter part is diameter, right? So it's two thousand per mile. This is called fashioning a rock. I walk to the hem of the suburb where it skirts the bush. There, despite the fog, the frogs are on the maracas, shaking them like world-class percussionists. Plains froglet, eastern froglet, eastern banjo, hobble walk. Spotted grass frog, whistling tree frog, Purden's tree frog, hobble walk. Northern corrigory frog, common eastern froglet frog. Spotted grass and burrow frog, green and golden, green and golden, bell frog, bell frog, hobble walk. I come to hear them fighting. Magpie lands nearby, giving me the sideways glance. We listen together. He may be shaking his tail feathers. The frog lets loose the rhythm. The buzz is all. When the cicadas join the jam session, magpie hops half a meter closer, then closer still, once more yet again. And together, we two-step in the universal stomp. <coughs> so um, I couldn't pass up the chance to read this poem because um, it's inspired by Juan Miro, who was the painter, the, the modernist painter. He's my favorite painter, so I feel. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, but this is so. This is um, a prose poem. This is meeting Juan Miro in in Manica. At first, he was a bird flapping across the table, then a fish. But when the waiter came, Juan ordered snapper and then asked, "How can I eat myself?" So he morphed into a rooster. And then finally a man. The cock was gratuitous, he said, cracking himself up. I said nothing, too overwhelmed by his primary presence. Yellow, red, and blue splotches swarmed around his head like flies. Charcoal streaked across his cheek and nose. The waiter set down two copas of sangria. Salud. Juan tasted it and paused. It's okay, he said, but I know how to make better. He took a marker and right on the table, he drew a circle without moving his wrist and started coloring it in. Red Valencia, he said, as the waiter walked out with water. Looking at the orange outlined on the table, he asked me, who does this guy think he is, Picasso? I shrugged, unwilling to confess the truth. <coughs> when the waiter was out of earshot, Miro tapped the flat globe with his middle finger, and it popped to life. He took his butter knife and halved the fruit. Then he quartered it. Sucking on one wedge, he squeezed another into my drink, then tucked the curled rind next to a cube of ice with the same finger. It's not Rioja, he said, but it'll do. <laughs> So this one, um, sometimes when I read and I'm later in the program, I like to, to find connections. Um, so this one is about um, Ukraine. <coughs> inexplicably found myself in Ukraine, um, or surprise, I guess not inexplicably, but it was a surprise. Um, it was in maybe 2011, 2012. 
Um, and, and two memories of Keith that I really have um, is that the underground, underground are these catacombs with the, the entombed bodies of saints. And then how peaceful and golden the city was. And so I, every time I hear the news, I think about this contrast of what I remember and what I hear. This is Colors for Keith. By coincidence, which is never pure, everyone wears the white vestments of angels and bears a candle. A beige paper circle wraps the lower end of each ivory stick, catching what drips. A monk in a brown robe nods at each person's exit. As we follow the path from the catacombs, the flames we carry waver, flicker, fade into the day. The air smells of wax, extinguished fire, and coffee from the nearby cafe, where one's woman's cups, where one woman's cup sloshes dark splotches across her tunic. Outside, above, is as blue as a turquoise ring, and golden domes fill the sky. This is the last one that I'll read. It's in, it's in two parts. It plays with point of view, so it's a little bit longer. Um, and the title comes after Langston Hughes, uh, one of his lines. This is called Deep Like the River. I am obsessed with rivers. I wander the banks sizing up the river, snake-like in its windings, zen-like in its pools, frightened when rushing at the lip of the waterfall, exuberant and laughing when it lands among itself without calamity and then zips along. While others stroll beaches and ponder the surf, the tides, the horizon, I walk the edges, skirt the reeds, listen to the liquid babble, the songbirds twitter, the ducks squabble, language risen as a host before the mouth is ever reached. I finger the pebbles that line the river's route, fill the cup of my hand with its coolness as a tulip cradles sun. I am obsessed with the river, its ancient trickles, its rages, its wars, its whirling loops, dark waters jetting forwards, dusky waters, spinning out our dreams. You are obsessed with rivers. You take your body down to the river. You remove your sandals. You sink your feet into the chill, letting your toes hug the pebbles beneath. You wade, every step pulling you deeper into the current, the water level line creeping up your thighs. When it embraces your hips, you lift your legs like a frog and breaststroke toward the rapid. You launch yourself into the glory with the cottonwood leaves overhead, dappling light across the river's skin, across your body that shimmies along. You dip as the white cap slingshots your body, jettys you toward a boulder, then swings you into an eddy where you float like a circling stick. You took your body down to the river. The river took your body and taught it to swim. Now you and the river go everywhere together. <laughs>
much. And thank all of you for listening. There's, Phil, I think, has may would like to speak a little bit about his work. We've been breathing it in all through this hour. I can, I can, I can try. <laughs> but also, in questions, answers, comments, there's certainly time for a, a bit of a chat That's and then maybe um, a drink. I'm not really, I'm not really sure what to say about my work. Um, um, I don't know where to start. I really, I really don't know what I'm doing, to be honest, with <laughs> those paintings. But um, I suppose a better way to talk about my work, just briefly, is how involved it has been with other writers in the past, um, which is probably easy to talk about. Um, I don't know really when that began. Um, I think maybe when I was about 16, somewhere in that age, maybe 15, I started reading sort of more you know, literature, you know, like, of course, Alice and books I like. I actually read the Gospels for some reason. <laughs> and other things. Anyway, then, then it went on and I started drawing and writing down stuff next to it. Eventually, this led to me, you know, um, studying here in Canberra under Peter Hurley made books and then <coughs> having my own printing press and wanting to work with poets. And it was a thing of mine from a very early age. I, don't, I really admired the idea of writing, particularly poets. And I wasn't a poet. I thought, well, how can I sit closer to poets? <laughs> so I thought I could make books, you know, and make images or print poems and do things like that. And um, and so I started seeking it out more. But the, when I originally founded the press, which was called Finlay Press, um, the, the person I co-founded with, she wasn't so interested in poetry. So it steered away from that. And that got delayed a lot. I did little bits of poetry on the side. I was not on the side, but I did do stuff. And, and some really good poets. No, what do you mean a great poem, I thought. And then, um, and then that turned into a publishing Finlay Lawyer, which still exists, which mm. I'm no longer a part of. Not for any bad reason, just I can only make so many books. And again, the other three members that weren't so interested in poetry. <laughs> so I kept being delayed by this, and I thought, okay, that's fine. And I was just doing my bit. And then eventually I thought, that's it, I can't do this anymore. I've got to start doing poetry. And um, somewhere in there, um, um, Zebo Press had contacted me about designing their books, and one thing went to another, and we this life will be got folded. You now became sort of a, a subsidiary, like a, to the parent gazebo, an imprint to, to gazebo, mm. and now it's such a joy to um, do all the things I wanted to do with poetry, which is a lot of the typography because I did a lot of type design and typesetting and stuff for um, you know, the artist books and um, limited edition books and fine press books and. That um, hand setting in hot metal, like metal type, metal type, the, the, there's no slower way to read a poem than mm. actually type setting. Mm. And to bring what I felt was, I must be, I can't think now, I must be close to 20 years of type setting. Um, and to bring that into, the, into an office, like to a book like this, which I'm not being rude about other poetry books, mm. but a lot of that is not as. The, the, there's a time, you know, especially in poetry where there isn't the money as well. Like it's not the top selling sort of stuff. Like yeah. <laughs> but it's not. But to be able to, yeah. but, but because poetry, I realised was weird. Like when I, um, I was an undergrad working at the paper at the Canberra Times, and I noticed that I thought when I got because I was by chance I got this job as a kid. I thought, oh, you make cartoons, you make caricatures and stuff. And then I got that job, like just by chance, it was a funny thing. And then I realised you're the last consideration of the illustrator or caricaturist. If they saw the advert put in first, of course, and I understood that, then the article's went around it. 
if they had a photograph, they'd use that. If they didn't have something, they'd say, okay, you draw it. <laughs> so it's the most graphic thing in the paper was a hand-drawn thing, and it was the least consideration. And I found the same with poetry books. They're the most graphic typesetting, and they're the most least considered, you know, in, like, in the sense of like production, you know, like poetry books are usually the thinnest, well, you know, thin papers and, and um, you know, um, low runs and low production, and I thought, that's, that just seems back to front to me. And um, so I always saw them as a very visual thing. So seeing the poets today who I've been setting the books with and are very generous with me with all my errors and corrections and, you know, change. Like, yeah, it's been really good work with all of them, really, really interesting. And I fussed, I remember with um, Paul's book, I said, oh, Paul, there's an ellipsis here. This is the only edit I think I made in Paul's book. I said, but I think it needs a full stop after it. And so let me think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think that's better. I think that is better. <laughs> so it was a proper consideration. Now, these are little things you're not supposed to notice as a reader, you know, because that's good typography. You're not supposed to notice it at all. But you always notice the bad stuff, you know. And um, anyway, and I, and, I, and I really do think poets have a very... Not really talking about my paintings here, I'm talking about poetry. I really think that painting has a truly... Um, uni genuinely universal in some sort of secular spiritual sense and that sounds odd but it's, it's universal in that sense it's like a if there was some equivalent to a universal religion i think it's poetry like there's every everyone every every culture's had it spoken or written or whatever and, it's, mm -hmm. and i think it's um and people's way into it um people, some people find it very difficult and it's, they, they're cautious about it and i and i i don't need it just because i'm overconfident and an idiot but I just sort of run at it and just do what I do with it. But other people think, oh, how do you read it? And you just read it. And they, and they don't, I don't know what they're expecting. Anyway, um, and in that, I, I just really wanted to make books with that design. And the reason I put my paintings on after doing books with people for years is that that's it, I'm starting to use my work. And I thought, well, they're not the worst paintings in the world. And, and at least I can control the series <laughs> and keep the ambiguity of a poem there. Yes. I didn't want to undermine the poetry. I didn't want to bring any narrative or a face. I just wanted to, and my paintings and my pictures that arrived at this point, I thought, this suits. And I was lucky enough that Gazebo said, yeah, that's fine, you've got complete creative control. Mm -hmm. And all the other pops were nervous about not having titles and things. Well, you know, it's a bit unusual, but then recently, like in reviews, it opened up with talking about the design and how yeah. appreciative they were of it. And, um, and, um, and yeah, anyway, I just, I think there is a, it's a similar approach to my painting in a way, some sort of, Attempt. It's not formalism. I don't know. I can't really talk about it. I can't. I, yeah. just talk about it. I mean, I could, but it wouldn't. Make, it's yeah. not secretive. It's not. It's not. It's not. A, it's not private in that way. But it's not. They're. They're. Um. They're my attempt. They're probably my closest. That's probably about as close as I can get to writing a poem by doing the paintings and doing that. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. I'm not trying yeah. to argue anything. Yeah. Like a yeah. poem is not. You know, it's. It's more showing. It's pulling the curtains back of writing a poem. It's not. Yes. If that makes sense. Except for the 18th century, poems haven't been making arguments. Oh, yeah. um, and I think you're absolutely right. You talked about the universal language as a secular language. Peter Goldsworthy, who's, uh, you probably know him best as a novelist, but he's also a very good poet, uh, he says that um, what, is, what we reach for, we being all humans, and great primates too, because we've got the signing chips that told us things, what we reach for in times of heightened emotion whether it's sorrow or joy or excitement, is metaphor. Mm. And poetry is metaphor on limbs, really. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I guess 
whatever my paintings I've ever attempted something from them. I'm just a poor cousin of the poets, I think. <laughs> if I no, a friendly neighbor. A friendly, <laughs> friendly neighbor. neighbor. Thank you. Yeah. It's remarkable. I don't know how many of you are artists and writers, but it's everybody finds it really hard to talk about their work. And that's why creative PhDs, which we're all involved in the back there, are unkind. They're cruel to do because you don't want to talk about it. You just want to make it because you don't know what you're doing. We're blundering. Yeah, I remember, I remember reading, I remember I heard it somewhere. One time ago, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm -hmm. he said it started when he was. 15, like you were talking about pictures. That's why I remember getting it wrong. We talked about pictures and stuff. And, <coughs> yeah. and C.S. Lewis, he had a, he just had this image. It came to him of fawn walking through the snow. I think it was carrying a parcel with an umbrella. And he had it for years and it just stayed there. Mm. And then and he thought, just there, we just kept thinking about it. So at age 40, he thought, I'll start writing it. And then a lion entered it for some reason. And he thought, and it, was all, it was images. And then he just, and that sort of let the whole thing unfold, you know. So I think. You know, if you ask him why did you do it's the why is the difficult one. How he did it, that was easy yeah. in some typing away. I mean, but it's not as easy. Why? Why would anyone yeah. write a poem? I don't know. Why would you paint a picture? I don't know. I don't know why you write. And I think it, and I think yeah. if I actually gave too much thought to it, like dancing, you just can't do it. If mm. you thought to <coughs> me I don't give much thought. I do give thought, but not while I'm I don't know. I can't really help myself. <laughs> it's easy if I was doing a portrait, you know, if I'm doing a portrait, what are you doing? I'm doing you, you know, I'm going for it. It's like photography, you're just getting a likeness. But, but these are, no, I had fun. Anyway, but thank you very much. Anyone else? Yeah, Phil, have you worked, I mean, in developing a project, it's time to um, work with others. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, like, you mean with the, with the Life on Man series or in general? Yeah, and or other poets, and you should have. Got, um, good connections or yeah. Um, well, I remember in pre, like when it was handset, you'd sort of <laughs> handset it and go, I really like this long pump, but I don't have them. You just sit there and handset the whole thing. So often it was limited by size early on, mm. but now that's gone. There you go, it's like, I think, um, you know, it's not a problem. Um, Kimberley's was a good example because it was, it, it solved a problem that I wanted to get around was that, um, like the format of the book is. A poetry book, you know, you don't want a big square book, and it can be quite long lines. And there were poems, and I thought, well, I wanted to try this, and I suggested let's do it. And she was all for it. She said, oh, I love this space idea. So I said, let's go across the gutter, like the fold in the middle. And, we'll, and she had these breaks, and said, well, I think we can do it with yours. And she said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And I only saw the book today, and it worked pretty well. Like, we had to measure it, I made a mock up, and I showed her where the measurement was in the bindings. So I think this will come through. And there was a little bit of that in Natalie's as well. So that was. Well, I feel that the poets are really generous to sort of say, oh, yeah, let's, let's go for it. But I think um, more recently was in 2000, I think it was 14. Well, actually, it was in 2010. I moved to Melbourne, and I thought I'll, I'll find a poet to work with. And I just tried to build the opposite of myself. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I want someone who's, you know, my age or younger, you know, something like that. But I just said, I want to work with a female. I've been working with lots of males. But I'm much older than me, like Rob Mosquad and Julian Davies and Gary Catalano. I just want some fresh, I don't know why I felt that was sensible. And then I found poets and I said, I just, I just want to make some pictures, I want you to handwrite from them. I said to the poets, I went, no, I'm not doing that. I didn't want to handwrite on them. I thought, like, okay, well, I'll do it then. So I went off and did things, I was travelling around North America and doing these books and did my writing myself. And then I came back and it was um, um, through another ride that I met Cassandra. And I said, hey, Cass, you know, do you want to write on some pictures of mine? And she said, yeah, I'd love to. And I, and I said, you don't have to say anything about them, but I'm doing, I'm not illustrating work, I'm just doing pictures and you can write whatever you want. And, um, and we did a series called, 
again, I titled her called it Sketch Notes with a hyphen mm -hmm. Sketch Notes. And hers were sort of beginning poems, and, a, and that was sort of little, and then, um, and I was just coming up, and this was the beginning of finding these images. I was looking for images that she got around. So it was like images that I felt that had been with me forever, you know, like a letter sort of. And that sounds weird, but just going up steps, things that had no real. That were just tennis balls. You tennis balls, yes. Tennis balls. Yeah, tennis balls. Yeah. <laughs> tennis balls. <laughs> and because, um, like, with a tennis ball, like, I mean, you know, even though I haven't, I never played tennis, but they're always around as a kid. You know, it's not about sentiment, but I know what it feels like. I know what a wet one feels like in playing with in cricket. And I just wanted things that I could just take into the studio and not take things like Donald Trump into the studio. Or, <laughs> you know, just things like. Mm. Anyway, and Cass, we um we did five of those volumes, and I just I think I can't remember the proper actually. I don't remember if you remember how many we did, but six or something. Six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was six copies of each one or yeah. something. Yeah. Philip did a really marvellous, um, what do you call it? You, you just gave a big index to the whole thing. It was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> At the National Library. I knew more about my work then. <laughs> um, but then, um, and then I, and I met Paul through Cass at that point, and we did a similar thing. Like we've got, and we've still got one more to do. And, and that was before Life or Men. That was always coming along, and it just hadn't got there yet. And then, but and then in that working with people like um, like in the bottom so like Alex Selenich that was a really big task and an enormous amount of footnotes in that book for you know purgatory replaced and and it was like it was like um I don't know it's like the story of Solomon Gomorrah you know where where um Lot sort of bargaining with God <laughs> like I was there but I'd go, I think we can get we have a few of these footnotes. And he's going, yeah, you're right. And I come and go, can we get, I think you can move some more. <laughs> I just grabbed just remove all these things. We just clutter. It was just absolute clutter. And he, in the end, he thought, yeah, it was much better book. Like, visually, you can see my point now. Like, he just couldn't, he was so close, but he worked on it so years. I like, couldn't just go in and just, you know, draw. He just, he said, what's that happening? But it was. Was that a handset? Hand no, no, no. This is up yeah. here. This is the, yeah. um, it's, over. it's a, quite a large book. It's a, it's a trust book. Um, and, um, I'm just trying to think of some of the other poets who are some of some are so some of the, you know I don't know it, it's just very it's different like like with yours Paul it was, it was, it was barely anything you know and Cass's I think it was just a few fact checking things like on the Wizard of Oz and stuff <laughs> <laughs> tiny thing and then and then of course there's and a lot of the poets I work with do a lot of the editing as well like Steve picked up in I think it was in Cass's book we had pity in Pity and pre, I think there was an extra R. There was something that was just done for the movie. So, so I don't know. Like it, it's it's um, but in the in the choosing the poets, um, you know, like going, but choosing the poets is the most interesting thing I find. And um, and I was sitting there like just now listening, and when Sebastian was reading, <coughs> and how different the voices were that came through this, but they're on the page as well. But then they, they come out. You can see the personalities, and also subjects and. And maybe it was because Sebastian's, you know, the timbre of his voice and that, you know, the sort of self-confident accent and that. And I started thinking about just stuff like that, you know, mm -hmm. afterwards. And I was thinking how, um, in, it was an odd thought to have, but I'll say it anyway. But I was thinking how in Hinduism there's an idea of reincarnation. I don't know much, I'm not, of course I don't know, but, but um, the, that wasn't a fully formed thought, but it was the idea at what point in your everyone's at a different stage in their life, mm -hmm. you know. 
And when you look at a child, because I'm, you know, there were other poems like Steve had about children and stuff, and after that, and thinking, and the same with poets, you look at the, the differences where their thoughts and where their lives are at at a time, mm. and to, to sort of, um, how to, if, if, a, if a poetry series was to be inclusive of every single voice out there, then you'd have to have every single person write a poem. But you know, I mean, like every, yes. So how do you make sure that you don't fill it with a, a particular type of writing mm -hmm. or a particular type of reading? Like I know some types like Paul, I know you're very well read, you know, but some types, you know, but some types don't, they, make, they grab at other things. It's not that they aren't well read, but like I always find Steve's poems are so, they're so eclectic, it's like just a big, they're just all over the place, and I love it for that reason, you know. I, I really do. And it, and it really informed me when I first met Steve, like, you know, his poems really led me to say that anything can be a picture, you know, like anything can be a poem, like any subject that is. You know? And so I look for that when I'm poets. I don't try and, I try and remove myself a bit. I don't bring myself to it in that way. So when I look, I just try and do what I can that best suits the poem. Like I know Sebastian's been spits some things across just to give a different, the sort of, I thought, a masculine, feminine voice. I don't know. It's, 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 I try my best. <laughs> I talk too much. Anybody else like to throw in an idea? Or? I'll give a shorter answer. <laughs> <laughs> you may feel if you're listening for too long, but you know, talk back. That's always the way we get rid of the tension of sleeping silently. Shyness. Shyness. Don't hear me talking. Or would you rather get a glass of wine than maybe you know start start chatting? You're chat, nodding. Chat to the poets. Chat, chat to the poets. Yeah. Well, please call the poets. The poets here. They've all got pen. Yeah. The poets probably need them. Well, anyway, I want to thank Jen, and I'm going to thank the public. But thank you very much, Jen. Of course, the poet for the reasons. <laughs> I'm to also, uh, thank Diana. She's still here. She just lay staff. But Diana, um, I'm not sure if people realise this, but just really quickly, Diana built this space for herself. She's a very skilled tonal painter and draft person. I've realised. You know, I knew that for the painting, but she showed me this drawing of a pumpkin, which she doesn't like. I think it's terrific. Um, it's like it's only about this big, but it has that weight of a big pumpkin. Anyway, she built this the studio, and she had an architect friend designer, we sort of did it together. And she felt it was just too good to be a studio, so she's offered it to the community. But you know, it's, you know she invited people to do this, and I said, and when she asked me, so oh, would you like to have a show? I said, if I can do a poetry along with this. And she said, sure, and, it's, and it is such a fantastic space. So without this, it's things like this are such a gift to, you know, to the, the you know, community arts, you know, so to speak. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. One last thing, Jen. I didn't, I didn't mention when we could talk as quick as you do. So I, I thought, <laughs> Which one is Diana? Good. The glasses? Yes. Anyway, I'm going to drink, let me get some food wandering around. I do work with so long, but it just... Well, you need to, you need to, there's a lot to say. No, I want to get something for you, hang on. <laughs>